Chapter 1, Part 1 of Memoirs of Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Memoirs of Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds by Charles Mackay, Volume 1. Chapter 1 Money Mania the Mississippi Scheme, Part One. Some in clandestine companies combine, erect new stocks to trade beyond the line, with air and empty names beguile the town, and raise new credits first, then cry em down. Divide the empty nothing into shares, and set the crowd together by the ears. Defoe. The personal character and career of one man are so intimately connected with the great scheme of the years 1719 and 1720 that a history of the Mississippi madness can have no fitter introduction than a sketch of the life of its great author, John Law. Historians are divided in opinion as to whether they should designate him a knave or a madman. Both epithets were unsparingly applied to him in his lifetime, and while the unhappy consequences of his projects were still deeply felt. Posterity, however, has found reason to doubt the justice of the accusation, and to confess that John Law was neither knave nor madman, but one more deceived than deceiving, more sinned against than sinning. He was thoroughly acquainted with the philosophy and true principles of credit, he understood the monetary question better than any man of his day, and if his system fell with a crash so tremendous, it was not so much his fault as that of the people amongst whom he had erected it. He did not calculate upon the avaricious frenzy of a whole nation. He did not see that confidence, like mistrust, could be increased almost ad infinitum, and that hope was as extravagant as fear. How was he to foretell that the French people, like the man in the fable, would kill, in their frantic eagerness, the fine goose he had brought to lay them so many golden eggs. His fate was like that which may be supposed to have overtaken the first adventurous boatman who rowed from Erie to Ontario. Broad and smooth was the river on which he embarked, rapid and pleasant was his progress, and who was to stay him in his career. Alas for him, the cataract was nigh. He saw, when it was too late, that the tide which wafted him so joyously along was a tide of destruction, and when he endeavoured to retrace his way, he found that the current was too strong for his weak efforts to stem, and that he drew nearer every instant to the tremendous falls. Down he went over the sharp rocks, and the waters with him. He was dashed to pieces with his bark, but the waters, maddened and turned to foam by the rough descent, only boiled and bubbled for a time, and then flowed on again as smoothly as ever. Just so it was with Law and the French people. He was the boatman, and they were the waters. John Law was born at Edinburgh in the year 1671. His father was the younger son of an ancient family in Fife, and carried on the business of a goldsmith and banker. He amassed considerable wealth in his trade, sufficient to enable him to gratify the wish, so common among his countrymen, of adding a territorial designation to his name. He purchased with this view the estates of Lauriston and Randleston, on the Frith of Forth, on the borders of West and Midlothian, and was thenceforth known as Law of Lauriston. The subject of our memoir, being the eldest son, was received into his father's counting-house at the age of fourteen, 
and for three years laboured hard to acquire an insight into the principles of banking as then carried on in scotland he had always manifested great love for the study of numbers and his proficiency in the mathematics was considered extraordinary in one of his tender years at the age of seventeen he was tall strong and well made and his face although deeply scarred with the smallpox was agreeable in its expression and full of intelligence at this time he began to neglect his business and becoming vain of his person indulged in considerable extravagance of attire he was a great favourite with the ladies by whom he was called beau law while the other sex despising his foppery nicknamed him jessamy john at the death of his father which happened in sixteen eighty eight he withdrew entirely from the desk which had become so irksome and being possessed of the revenues of the paternal estate of Lorison, he proceeded to london to see the world he was now very young very vain good-looking tolerably rich and quite uncontrolled it is no wonder that on his arrival in the capital he should launch into extravagance he soon became a regular frequenter of the gaming-houses and by pursuing a certain plan based upon some abstruse calculation of chances he contrived to gain considerable sums all the gamblers envied him his luck and many made it a point to watch his play and stake their money on the same chances in affairs of gallantry he was equally fortunate ladies of the first rank smiled graciously upon the handsome scotchman the young the rich the witty and the obliging but all these successes only paved the way for reverses after he had been for nine years exposed to the dangerous attractions of the gay life he was leading he became an irrecoverable gambler as his love of play increased in violence it diminished in prudence great losses were only to be repaired by still greater ventures and one unhappy day he lost more than he could repay without mortgaging his family's estate to that step he was driven at last at the same time his gallantry brought him into trouble a love affair or slight flirtation with a lady of the name of villiers note one miss elizabeth villiers afterwards countess of orkney exposed him to the resentment of a mr wilson by whom he was challenged to fight a duel law accepted and had the ill fortune to shoot his antagonist dead upon the spot he was arrested the same day and brought to trial for murder by the relatives of mr wilson he was afterwards found guilty and sentenced to death the sentence was commuted to a fine upon the ground that the offence only amounted to manslaughter an appeal being lodged by a brother of the deceased law was detained in the king's bench whence by some means or other which he never explained he contrived to escape and an action being instituted against the sheriffs he was advertised in the gazette and a reward offered for his apprehension he was described as captain john law a scotchman aged twenty-six a very tall black lean man well shaped above six feet high with large pock-holes in his face big-nosed and a speaking broad and loud as this was rather a caricature than a description of him it has been supposed that it was drawn up with a view to favour his escape he succeeded in reaching the continent where he travelled for three years and devoted much of his attention to the monetary and banking affairs of the countries through which he passed he stayed a few months in amsterdam and speculated to some extent in the funds his mornings were devoted to the study of finance and the principles of trade and his evenings to the gaming-house it is generally believed that he returned to edinburgh in the year seventeen hundred it is certain that he published in that city 
his Proposals and Reasons for Constituting a Council of Trade. This pamphlet did not excite much attention. In a short time afterwards, he published a project for establishing what he called a land bank. Note 2. The wits of the day called it a sand bank, which would wreck the vessel of the state. The notes issued by which were never to exceed the value of the entire lands of the state, upon ordinary interest, or were to be equal in value to the land, with the right to enter into possession at a certain time. The project excited a good deal of discussion in the Scottish Parliament, and a motion for the establishment of such a bank was brought forward by a neutral party, called the Squadrone, whom Law had interested in his favour. The Parliament ultimately passed a resolution to the effect that to establish any kind of paper credit, so as to force it to pass, was an improper expedient for the nation. Upon the failure of this project, and of his efforts to procure a pardon for the murder of Mr. Wilson, Law withdrew to the continent, and resumed his old habits of gaming. For fourteen years he continued to roam about, in Flanders, Holland, Germany, Hungary, Italy, and France. He soon became intimately acquainted with the extent of the trade and resources of each, and daily more confirmed in his opinion that no country could prosper without a paper currency. During the whole of this time he appeared to have chiefly supported himself by successful play. At every gambling-house of note in the capitals of Europe he was known and appreciated as one better skilled in the intricacies of chance than any other man of the day. It is stated in the Biography Universelle that he was expelled, first from Venice and afterwards from Genoa, by the magistrates, who thought him a visitor too dangerous for the youth of those cities. During his residence in Paris, he rendered himself obnoxious to Darjensen, the lieutenant-general of the police, by whom he was ordered to quit the capital. This did not take place, however, before he had made the acquaintance in the saloons of the Duc de Vendôme, the Prince de Conti, and of the gay Duke of Orleans, the latter of whom was destined afterwards to exercise so much influence over his fate. The Duke of Orleans was pleased with the vivacity and good sense of the Scottish adventurer, while the latter was no less pleased with the wit and amiability of a prince who promised to become his patron. They were often thrown into each other's society, and Law seized every opportunity to instill his financial doctrines into the mind of one whose proximity to the throne pointed him out as destined, at no very distant date, to play an important role in the government. Shortly before the death of Louis the Fourteenth, or, as some say, in 1708, Law proposed a scheme of finance to Desmarais, the comptroller. Louis is reported to have inquired whether the projector were a Catholic, and on being answered in the negative, to have declined having anything to do with him. Note 3. This anecdote, which is related in the correspondence of Madame de Bavière, Duchess of Orleans and mother of the regent, is discredited by Lord John Russell in his History of the Principal States of Europe, from the Peace of Utrecht, for what reason he does not inform us. There is no doubt that Law proposed his scheme to Desmarais, and that Louis refused to hear of it. The reason given for the refusal is quite consistent with the character of that bigoted and tyrannical monarch. It was after this repulse that he visited Italy, his mind being still occupied with the schemes of finance, he proposed to Victor Amadeus, Duke of Savoy, to establish his land bank in that country. The Duke replied that his dominions were too circumscribed for the execution of so great a project, and that he was by far too poor a potentate to be ruined. He advised him, however, to try the King of France once more, 
for he was sure, if he knew anything of the French character, that the people would be delighted with a plan not only so new, but so plausible. Louis the Fourteenth died in 1715, and the heir to the throne being an infant only seven years of age, the Duke of Orleans assumed the reins of government, as regent during his minority. Law now found himself in a more favorable position. The tide in his affairs had come, which, taken at the flood, was to waft him on to fortune. The regent was his friend, already acquainted with his theory and pretensions, and inclined, moreover, to aid him in any efforts to restore the wounded credit of France, bowed down to the earth by the extravagance of the long reign of Louis the Fourteenth. Hardly was that monarch laid in his grave ere the popular hatred, suppressed so long, burst forth against his memory. He who, during his life, had been flattered with an excess of adulation, to which history scarcely offers a parallel, was now cursed as a tyrant, a bigot, and a plunderer. His statues were pelted and disfigured, his effigies torn down, amid the execrations of the populace, and his name rendered synonymous with selfishness and oppression. The glory of his arms was forgotten, and nothing was remembered but his reverses, his extravagance, and his cruelty. The finances of the country were in a state of the utmost disorder. A profuse and corrupt monarch, whose profuseness and corruption were imitated by almost every functionary, from the highest to the lowest grade, had brought France to the verge of ruin. The national debt amounted to three thousand millions of livres, the revenue to one hundred forty-five millions, and the expenses of government to one hundred forty-two millions per annum, leaving only three millions to pay the interest upon three thousand millions. The first care of the regent was to discover a remedy for an evil of such magnitude, and a council was early summoned to take the matter into consideration. The Duc de Saint-Simon was of the opinion that nothing could save the country from a revolution but a remedy at once bold and dangerous. He advised the regent to convoke the States-General, and declare a national bankruptcy. The Duc de Noyers, a man of accommodating principles, an accomplished courtier, and totally averse from giving himself any trouble or annoyance that ingenuity could escape from, opposed the project of Saint-Simon with all his influence. He represented the expedient as alike dishonest and ruinous. The regent was of the same opinion, and this desperate remedy fell to the ground. The measures ultimately adopted, though they promised fair, only aggravated the evil. The first and most dishonest measure was of no advantage to the state a recoinage was ordered, by which the currency was depreciated one-fifth. Those who took a thousand pieces of gold or silver to the mint received back an amount of coin of the same nominal value, but only four-fifths the weight of the metal. By this contrivance, the treasury gained seventy-two millions of livres, and all the commercial operations of the country were disordered. A trifling diminution of the taxes silenced the clamors of the people, and for the slight present advantage the great prospective evil was forgotten. A chamber of justice was next instituted to inquire into the malversations of the loan contractors and the farmers of the revenues. Tax collectors are never very popular in any country, but those of France at this period deserved all the odium with which they were loaded. As soon as these farmers-general, with their hosts of subordinate agents, called maltotiers, note four, from maltot, an oppressive tax, were called to account for their misdeeds, the most extravagant joy took possession of the nation. 
the chamber of justice instituted chiefly for this purpose was endowed with very extensive powers it was composed of the presidents and councils of the parliament the judges of the courts of aid and of requests and the officers of the chamber of account under the general presidents of the minister of finance informers were encouraged to give evidence against the offenders by the promise of one-fifth part of the fines and confiscations a tenth of all concealed effects belonging to the guilty was promised to such as could furnish the means of discovering them the promulgation of the edict constituting this court caused a degree of consternation among those principally concerned which can only be accounted for on the supposition that their peculation had been enormous but they met with no sympathy the proceedings against them justified their terror the bastille was soon unable to contain the prisoners that were sent to it and the jails all over the country teemed with guilty or suspected persons an order was issued to all innkeepers and postmasters to refuse horses to such as endeavoured to seek safety in flight and all persons were forbidden under heavy fines to harbour them or favour their evasion some were condemned to the pillory others to the galleys and the least guilty to fine and imprisonment one only samuel bernard a rich banker and farmer-general of a province remote from the capital was sentenced to death so great had been the illegal profits of this man looked upon as the tyrant and oppressor of his district that he offered six millions of livres or two hundred fifty thousand pounds sterling to be allowed to escape his bribe was refused and he suffered the penalty of death others perhaps more guilty were more fortunate confiscation owing to the concealment of their treasures by the delinquents often produced less money than a fine the severity of the government relaxed and fines under the denomination of taxes were indiscriminately levied upon all offenders but so corrupt was every department of the administration that the country benefited but little by the sums which thus flowed into the treasury courtiers and courtiers wives and mistresses came in for the chief share of the spoils one contractor had been taxed in proportion to his wealth and guilt at the sum of twelve millions of livres the count blank a man of some weight in the government called upon him and offered to procure a remission of the fine if he would give him a hundred thousand crowns vous êtes trop tard mon ami replied the financier i have already made a bargain with your wife for fifty thousand note five this anecdote is related by monsieur de la Ode in his life of philip of orleans it would have looked more authentic if he had given the names of the dishonest contractor and the still more dishonest minister but monsieur de la Ode's book is liable to the same objection as most of the french memoirs of that and of subsequent periods it is sufficient with most of them that an anecdote be ben trovato the vero is but a matter of secondary consideration about a hundred and eighty millions of livres were levied in this manner of which eighty were applied in payments of the debts contracted by the government the remainder found its way into the pockets of the courtiers madame de maintenon writing on this subject says we hear every day of some new grant of the regent the people murmur very much at this mode of employing the money taken from the peculators the people who after the first burst of their resentment is over generally express a sympathy for the weak were indignant that so much severity should be used to so little purpose they did not see the justice of robbing one set of rogues to fatten another in a few months all the more guilty had been brought to punishment and the chamber of justice looked for victims in humbler walks of life 
Charges of fraud and extortion were brought against tradesmen of good character in consequence of the great inducements held out to common informers. They were compelled to lay open their affairs before this tribunal in order to establish their innocence. The voice of complaint resounded from every side, and at the expiration of a year the government found it advisable to discontinue further proceedings. The Chamber of Justice was suppressed, and a general amnesty granted to all against whom no charges had yet been preferred. In the midst of this financial confusion, law appeared upon the scene. No man felt more deeply than the regent the deplorable state of the country, but no man could be more averse from putting his shoulders manfully to the wheel. He disliked business. He signed official documents without proper examination, and trusted to others what he should have undertaken himself. The cares inseparable from his high office were burdensome to him. He saw that something was necessary to be done, but he lacked the energy to do it, and had not enough virtue to sacrifice his ease and his pleasures in the attempt. No wonder that, with his character, he listened favorably to the mighty projects, so easy of execution, of the clever adventurer whom he had formerly known, and whose talents he appreciated. When Law presented himself at court, he was most cordially received. He offered two memorials to the regent, in which he set forth the evils that had befallen France owing to an insufficient currency, at different times depreciated. He asserted that a metallic currency, unaided by paper money, was wholly inadequate to the wants of a commercial country, and particularly cited the examples of Great Britain and Holland to show the advantages of paper. He used many sound arguments on the subject of credit, and proposed as a means of restoring that of France, then at so low an ebb among the nations, that he should be allowed to set up a bank, which should have the management of the royal revenues, and issue notes both on that and on landed security. He further proposed that this bank should be administered in the king's name, but subject to the control of commissioners to be named by the states-general. While these memorials were under consideration, Law translated into French his essay on money and trade, and used every means to extend through the nation his renown as a financier. He soon became talked of, the confidants of the regent spread abroad his praise, and everyone expected great things of Monsieur Las. The French pronounced his name in this manner to avoid the ungallic sound, Ah. After the failure of his scheme, the wag said the nation was Las de Lui, and proposed that he should in future be known by the name of Monsieur Elas. On the 5th of May, 1716, a royal edict was published, by which Law was authorized, in conjunction with his brother, to establish a bank under the name of Law and Company, the notes of which should be received in payment of the taxes. The capital was fixed at six millions of livres, in twelve thousand shares of five hundred livres each, purchasable one-fourth in specie, and the remainder in billets d'état. It was not thought expedient to grant him the whole of the privileges prayed for in his memorials until experience should have shown their safety and advantage. Law was now on the high road to fortune. The study of thirty years was brought to guide him in the management of his bank. He made all his notes payable at sight, and in the coin current at the time they were issued. This last was a master stroke of policy, and immediately rendered his notes more valuable than the precious metals. The latter were constantly liable to deprecation by the unwise tampering of the government. A thousand livres of silver might be worth their nominal value one day, and be reduced one-sixth the next, but a note of law's bank retained its original value. 
he publicly declared at the same time that a banker deserved death if he made issues without having sufficient security to answer all demands. The consequence was that his notes advanced rapidly in public estimation, and were received at one per cent more than specie. It was not long before the trade of the country felt the benefit. Languishing commerce began to lift up her head. The taxes were paid with greater regularity and less murmuring, and a degree of confidence was established that could not fail, if it continued, to become still more advantageous. In the course of a year, Law's notes rose to fifteen per cent premium, while the billets d'état, or notes issued by the government as security for the debts contracted by the extravagance of Louis the Fourteenth, were at a discount of no less than seventy-eight and a half per cent. The comparison was too great in favor of Law not to attract the attention of the whole kingdom and his credit extended itself day by day. Branches of his bank were almost simultaneously established in Lyon, Rochelle, Tours, Amiens, and Orleans. The regent appears to have been utterly astonished at his success, and gradually to have conceived the idea that paper, which could so aid a metallic currency, could entirely supersede it. Upon this fundamental error he afterwards acted. In the meantime, law commenced the famous project which has handed his name down to posterity he proposed to the regent who could refuse him nothing to establish a company that should have the exclusive privilege of trading to the great river mississippi and the province of louisiana on its western bank the country was supposed to abound in the precious metals and the company supported by the profits of their exclusive commerce were to be the sole farmers of the taxes and the sole coiners of money letters patent were issued incorporating the company in august seventeen seventeen the capital was divided into two hundred thousand shares of five hundred livres each the whole of which might be paid in billets d'état at their nominal value although worth no more than a hundred and sixty livres in the market it was now that the frenzy of speculating began to seize upon the nation law's bank had effected so much good that any promises for the future which he thought proper to make were readily believed the regent every day conferred new privileges upon the fortunate projector the bank obtained the monopoly of the sale of tobacco the sole right of refinage of gold and silver and was finally erected into the royal bank of france amid the intoxication of success both law and the regent forgot the maxims so loudly proclaimed by the former that a banker deserved death who made issues of paper without the necessary funds to provide for them as soon as the bank from a private became a public institution the regent caused a fabrication of notes to the amount of one thousand millions of livres this was the first departure from sound principles and one for which law is not justly blamable while the affairs of the bank were under his control the issues had never exceeded sixty millions whether law opposed the inordinate increase is not known but as it took place as soon as the bank was made a royal establishment it is but fair to lay the blame of the change of system upon the regent law found that he lived under a despotic government but he was not yet aware of the pernicious influence which such a government could exercise upon so delicate a framework as that of credit he discovered it afterwards to his cost but in the meantime he suffered himself to be impelled by the regent into courses which his own reason must have disapproved with a weakness most culpable he lent his aid in inundating the country with paper money which based upon no solid foundation was sure to fall sooner or later 
the extraordinary present fortune dazzled his eyes and prevented him from seeing the evil day that would burst over his head when once from any cause or other the alarm was sounded the parliament were from the first jealous of his influence as a foreigner and had besides their misgivings as to the safety of his projects as his influence extended their animosity increased d'agassou the chancellor was unceremoniously dismissed by the regent for his opposition to the vast increase of paper money and the constant depreciation of the gold and silver coin of the realm this only served to augment the enmity of the parliament and when d'argenson a man devoted to the interests of the regent was appointed to the vacant chancellorship and made at the same time minister of finance they became more violent than ever the first measure of the new minister caused a further depreciation of the coin in order to extinguish the billet d'etat it was ordered that persons bringing to the mint four thousand livres in specie and one thousand livres in billet d'etat should receive back coin to the amount of five thousand livres d'argenson plumed himself mightily upon thus creating five thousand new and smaller livres out of the four thousand old and larger ones being too ignorant of the true principles of trade and credit to be aware of the immense injury he was inflicting upon both the parliament saw at once the impolicy and danger of such a system and made repeated remonstrances to the regent the latter refused to entertain their petitions when the parliament by a bold and very unusual stretch of authority commanded that no money should be received in payment but that of the old standard the regent summoned a lit de justice and annulled the decree the parliament resisted and issued another again the regent exercised his privilege and annulled it till the parliament stung to fiercer opposition passed another decree dated august twelfth seventeen eighteen by which they forbade the bank of law to have any concern either direct or indirect in the administration of the revenue and prohibited all foreigners under heavy penalties from interfering either in their own names or in that of others in the management of the finances of the state the parliament considered law to be the author of all the evil and some of the councillors in the virulence of their enmity proposed that he should be brought to trial and if found guilty be hung at the gates of the palais de justice law in great alarm fled to the palais royal and threw himself on the protection of the regent praying that measures might be taken to reduce the parliament to obedience the regent had nothing so much at heart both on that account and because of the disputes which had arisen relative to the legitimation of the duke of maine and the count of toulouse the sons of the late king the parliament was ultimately overawed by the arrest of their president and two of the councillors who were sent to distant prisons End of chapter one part one recording by sarah williams germantown maryland august two thousand eight